Welcome to The Brief, Tracking the Empire, with Justin Podor, John Elmer, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. On this episode, Blockade Standoff. I mean, Oka really revived the warrior spirit, warrior culture, fighting spirit, uh, resistance of Indigenous peoples. And so that's a big, big concern for the state. And and that's why they have this kind of hands-off approach right now, trying to deal with these blockades. Police move in on the Mohawks at Tyndinaga, setting off a further wave of blockades, disruptions, and direct action from coast to coast. Anna Zalek joins us to discuss the oil and gas industry, and Gord Hill talks indigenous resistance. Hey guys, another week. How are you? Hey Nora. Hey Nora. Yeah, what a what a week. Yeah, big week here. We on this podcast are tracking the empire, and uh, we have further episodes coming from elsewhere in the world. But we are going to stay on this story in Canada because this is the uh, belly of the beast, uh, if you will. So we're going to get right into it. Let's go. The briefing. So on Sunday night at midnight, the OPP in Ontario Provincial Police told the Tyndanaga Mohawks that they were going to be moving in on their encampment alongside the tracks that had effectively blocked rail through the most important industrial corridor and local travel corridor from between Montreal and Toronto. They moved in Monday morning with uh, a, a brute squad of officers, it looked to number about 100. Interesting in that they had no weapons, no tear gas, no shields or helmets, nothing to distract them. They were uh, a soft hat unit with Kevlar tactical gloves, and they moved in looking like essentially, and they did essentially, just carry out a fist fight uh, with those Mohawk warriors that were on the front lines of that blockade. Ten were arrested. A number of people were beaten pretty good. But immediately, further blockades went up. Highway blockades in Ganawage and Kanasatage, including the blocking of the Mercier Bridge, which was uh, a main flashpoint during the 1990 Oka crisis uh, when that bridge was blocked. The blockade that was alongside the tracks, not actually on the tracks, though they had heavy machinery alongside the tracks at Tyndanaga, that uh, was ended, but... Uh, fires were on the tracks later in the day and the second camp at Tyndanaga remains. There was a rail blockade that went up immediately in Gixon territory up towards Wet'suwet'en in the new Hazleton corridor to the west coast ports in the interior of British Columbia. 14 people were arrested there, including three hereditary chiefs. The blockade moved from the tracks over to the adjacent highway, Highway 16, which is the Highway of Tears, infamous for its role in the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. RCMP said four patrol cars there had their tires slit. The port of Vancouver was immediately blocked. The port of Delta was also blocked. There's been a rail blockade up in Chase, British Columbia. The BC legislature in Victoria was blocked and locked down by demonstrators out front blocking access to the public. A police van that came to make mass arrests was blocked from entering. Commuter rail, again, was blocked outside on the corridor into the commuter rail corridor into Vancouver and Abbotsford. There was a highway blockade in Victoria blocking the the mainland Victoria-Vancouver Island ferry at Schwartz Bay. Key intersections in Vancouver, including East Hastings, were blocked. Rail blockades went up in Edmonton and Saskatoon, indigenous land. The international border crossings were closed in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and Niagara Falls, Ontario, as well as Thousand Islands uh, near Kingston, which is close to Tyndanaga. There was road and commuter rail blockades by the Mohawks at Six Nations outside of Hamilton. Rallies on Parliament Hill in Ottawa. There was a commuter rail blockade in Burlington uh, outside of Toronto. And Go Train was blocked in Toronto during rush hour, which created havoc in downtown Toronto. There was a high school walkout in Belleville, which is the settler community beside uh, the Mohawks of Tyndanaga. And there was demonstrations in almost every major city and non-major city across the country. A, a commuter rail was blocked outside of Montreal as well. The blockades in Ganasatage and Ganawage were reinforced further. There are rail blockades in Lennoxville, Quebec, and the eastern townships. And there's a blockade by the Listigush Mi'kmaq and Gaspé. And they're ignoring the blockade injunction that's been served to them. They 
put it in the fire uh, yesterday when they had it served to them. That is just a partial list. The list of actions is too long to read on our show, or we would just be reading the actions. But it's a remarkable series of events that are happening from coast to coast. Just in some other news that happened this week during a Assembly of First Nations Chiefs press conference with the AFN National Chief, the Ganasatage Band Council Chief Serge Simon made a comment saying that the blockades should come down uh, even temporarily as a show of good faith. And the Mohawks at Ganasatage immediately set out for his office, chained his office closed, locked. When he arrived, they made him retract completely. Uh, his statements from the day before. When he finally agreed to do that, they asked him to call in the media. The media came and assembled, and he withdrew his comments from the day before about the blockade and said that he was in complete support of the blockade. This is something that we talk about uh, later in the show with Gord Hill, but the solidarity by the Mohawks and Tyndanega and Ganawage and Kanasatage is seen as a very important element of uh, what's happening as a show of solidarity and respect for the role that the West Coast First Nations played during the Oka crisis in 1990. So people in the community of Ganesatage took that very seriously. Another interesting story that came up this week was that despite all of the hype of the massive losses during the the blockades, uh, it was reported that CN and Canadian Pacific, the two rail giants, at the urging of the Liberal government, set up a bypass, a rare collaboration between the two giants with the federal government that achieved a workaround of the Tyndanega rail blockades. And as I said, this was uh, instigated by the government. The government approached the rail lines to get what, what the industry minister, transport minister Mark Garneau called extra wiggle room. And just uh, one more note, the Canadian manufacturers and exporters lobby group put the the number at $425 million a day of goods that were being held up by the blockades. Uh, And an interesting Ipsos Reid poll came forward showing that 39% of Canadians believed that the blockades were, quote, legit and justified. So that's just a partial summary of the direct actions happening across the country and the political fallout from it. So that was quite a list, (laughs) John. That was... uh... And that the idea that that's the partial list is pretty amazing. Yeah. It's a remarkable story. It's great. So it turns out, my friends, that there are just as many dirty corporate interests involved in this story almost as there are actions that you just read out, John. So uh, why don't we... <laughs> I, I have my colleague, Anna Zalek. She also works at the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York. In the interview with her, we go through uh, the political economy of the oil and gas industry as it pertains to this. Cool. You're listening to The Brief with John, Justin, and me, Nora. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod. And now, back to The Brief. I'm here with... Professor Anna Zalek. She's my colleague, actually, at the Faculty of Environmental Studies, which will soon be changed to the Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change. Anna is an expert on the political economy of the oil and gas industry, focusing on Mexico, Canada, and Nigeria, with a whole number of projects that are super relevant to what we're talking about today. So, Anna, thank you for joining me. Do you want to just tell me a little bit about specifically this project that you're doing on the Canadian oil and gas industry's uh, influence on the Mexican energy sector? Sure. Thanks, Justin. My colleague, Aleda Hernandez-Cervantes, who is at the UNAM, the National University, Autonomous University of Mexico, Mexico City, and I have been doing some joint research for the past few years concerning Canada's involvement in the restructuring of the Mexican energy sector. I won't go into great detail about that because it's not directly related to the topic. Well, it's directly related to the topic, but it's not the focus of the of our discussion today. But, you know, the short description of that is that, it, you know, a few years ago under the previous Mexican government, the uh, Mexican energy sector, which had previously been nationalized and protected from foreign and private investment, was sort of quite substantively denationalized. That had been an ongoing process, but it was much more aggressive as of 2013-14. And the Canadian government and Canadian companies 
are seeking entry and have entered fairly aggressively into the restructured Mexican energy sector. That's now been blocked a little bit by the new Mexican government, but among the players in that restructuring from the Canadian side is TransCanada Corporation, aka TC Energy, aka Coastal Gas Lake. So that and that gets us right to where what I wanted to talk about. So you you're actually working on a piece about coastal gas link TransCanada pipelines and the reconfiguration of oil and gas empires in North America. So help us unravel what exactly is TC Energy? What is this company and what is it trying to do here? Less than a year ago, TransCanada Corporation renamed itself TC Energy. This was in May of 2019, and it came on the heels of the um, I guess you could say the first Unistoten standoff concerning coastal gas link and um, in a period of time when attention to indigenous struggles in Turtle Island, you know, on the Canadian side of the U.S.-Canada border was building, uh, you know, the New York Times had covered it and um, members of the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs were preparing to go to the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Peoples in New York City. So this change of name was justified by TransCanada as a means of better representing their business, which has moved over the course of the past few years more into the U.S. and particularly into Mexico. But my view is that there's also you know, a certain attempt by TC Energy to distance itself from the term TransCanada, both because of its association with projects like Keystone XL and Energy East, which have either been cancelled or blocked or stalled over the years, and also with the reputation of Canada in Latin America. Canada's reputation has, one could argue, plummeted over the course of the past decades. Deservedly, yeah. Yes. Richly deservedly. Yeah, due to the activities of Canadian extractive industry. Yeah, so just to be absolutely clear, what you're telling me here is that TC Energy, the same company that's behind the standoff in Wet'suwet'en now, also is involved in Keystone XL and also was involved in Northern Gateway. Um, not Northern Gateway. And Northern Gateway was an Enbridge project, but Energy East, which was another project. But, I mean, arguably, um, you know, in a sense, they were involved with um, Northern Gateway in that all of the Canadian oil and gas and pipeline sector is very much intertwined with one another through corporate boards, through relationships with different think tanks, so how do they coordinate? How does the Canadian oil and gas industry coordinate their activities? Well, I mean, there's a couple of major lobby organizations, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, which represents producers, and the Canadian Energy Pipelines Association, which represents the great majority of pipeline companies. But in addition to those sort of kind of more formal networks and lobbying structures, there's also the sort of informal networks that arise from the relationships between board members. And the Corporate Mapping Project, which is a project at the University of Victoria, the Parkland Institute, the University of Alberta, and the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives in British Columbia, has put together a great database. I think they call it the Fossil Fuel 50 database. And on that da- in that database, they have maps um, where they show the relationships between different companies and offshoot companies and their board members. And so, for instance, in the case of TransCanada Corporation, or TC Energy as it's now known, among the board members, to start really close to home, was the former Scotiabank of CEO and also the former board of York, former chair of the board of York University during our last very contentious strike, Richard Waugh. So um, the interrelationships between these these groups of people are apparent. I mean, I you know, in the case of York University, for instance, I'm very aware of the fact that the board moved to um, prevent any discussion about divestment as an option for responsible investment strategy on the part of the university. And the board, in addition to Rick Waugh, has other members that are directly connected either through the energy industry directly or through such banks as the Royal Bank of Canada with 
the Canadian oil and gas industry. Yeah, I was looking at the bankroll for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And it seems like every bank, every Canadian bank is is heavily involved in bankrolling this project. Yes. Well, in the, there's an interesting um, you know, development, I think, in December. TC Energy announced and it, its it intention to sell off a 65% share in the project. And among the purchasers, purchasers of that 65% share is AIMCO, which is basically the investment fund for um, Alberta and various Canadian pension funds. And then KKR, right? And KKR. Shadowy global asset management firm, $200 billion in assets, they're saying. Right. And which also, I think, represents various pension funds. So, you know, this is one way in which many of us are implicated or could maybe have some influence on the future of some of these projects is by thinking about where our pensions are invested. Speaking of influence <laughs> over uh, over these projects, we're talking a little bit about the blockades, uh, not necessarily that they should be called blockades. There's a whole debate because they're not actually physically blocking the trains or whatever, whatnot. But I do wonder, like, as an observer of the industry, what's your take on on how they're experiencing them and how they're spinning them and what their relationship is to the blockades, like how they're feeling the blockades, I guess. There's at least sort of two timescales that industry is operating on. You know, one is the, is the present timescale regarding the costs that these blockades might have for the Canadian economy. And I'm sure that over the course of the next month, we'll see different analyses about how much these blockades actually cost and whether or not the impact on, of, on the Canadian economy was as high as projected or wasn't as high as projected. It might or, or might not be. Certainly, Glenn Coulthard, Il Nivesdene scholar has pointed out sort of the genius of the blockades, you know, being able to influence the future of this project in that they're able to, you know, shut down major infrastructural connections. But I think also equally important is the is the projection of such blockades for the certainty or risk associated with any particular investment, because this shapes the desire of banks and financial institutions to support such large projects. It shapes the cost of insurance for these projects, and it creates precedent for future projects. And the precedent factor, I think, also weighs in you know, the current debate about whether or not Coastal GasLink would consider rerouting the project to um, fulfill the demands made by the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. I was amazed when I found out that the Wet'suwet'en had actually uh, proposed alternative routes that they were willing to accept and that Coastal Gas is insisting on it going through all their sacred territories and ecologically sensitive areas. I mean, it's interesting because it, it for me, it was a bit reminiscent of a big shell project in the tar sands that I kind of followed carefully a number of years ago, the Shell Jack Pine Mine expansion, where there was also an issue um, that the major First Nation opposing the project, Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, sought a different route that would have avoided the Muskeg River. And Shell and the Canadian Crown refused that route on the basis that it would be too costly and that it would not bring sufficient benefits in principle to the Canadian taxpayer. But Shell ultimately left the tar sands, even though that project had been approved. So at the time and now, I sort of wonder whether part of this is creating, um, you know, that there's a hard line being drawn by the Canadian pipeline and oil and gas industry lobbies around not creating a precedent, not caving to not exceeding to the demands of Indigenous peoples, to demands of those who are mobilizing against projects. Because their margins are probably super fragile. If they stray a little bit, then the projects are, are unviable, which is actually kind of encouraging in a way. Yeah, I've, and I think they would certainly claim that but you know I, um, <laughs> yeah, they always and, claim that that's true and they always find a way to make money too that's true too i mean i think i, I what i find you know sort of mind-boggling is the ways in which projects can be you know huge amounts can be invested in projects and then removed from projects from one day to the next so for instance yeah. tax announcement that they're you know going to 
withdraw from the Frontier Project, which was most certainly, I think, influenced by the mobilization against this project, which I think they anticipated if they, you know, attempted to move forward with the tech frontier mine and the oil sands. I'm really glad you brought that up because that I was going to ask you about it. I'm so amazed, not only at that announcement and kind of coming out of nowhere in a, in a way, probably not for you, but for definitely for me. And also the way that the premier of BC instantly distanced himself from, like, I mean, I think some, uh, one, a politician said something like, this is a good step. And, and then Horgan distanced himself from that comment. He said, this doesn't represent uh, us or the BC NDP. It's just on the one hand, it's like industry is recognizing for their own profit margins the fragility of these projects, the the tenuous nature of these projects. And then the politicians are committing, you know, the social democratic politicians are committing themselves to to extractive industry despite the climate impacts and the impacts on their supposed reconciliation stance. I think that there may also be obviously political maneuvering going on here as well, right, around depicting the Canadian state as unable to control protests against the expansion of tar sands and frack gas and just hydrocarbon extraction in general. If industry portrays Canada as unable to deal with those protests, what happens? They move to Mexico or... Well, I mean, you know, this is this is, I think, something that one needs to we need to perhaps look into into greater depth. So I don't know what tech's um, insurance looked like for this particular project, but there are different categories. And it could be that pulling out at this point would be more beneficial for them from the perspective of whatever or not, whatever their financing Uh, looked like. So they might have been under pressure from from whoever's offering them risk financing to, to, to pull out now. And, you know, they also, there's a, there was a big campaign in place by Indigenous Climate Action against that project that was, of course, bringing negative publicity to the project um, that perhaps didn't want on its record as it sought, as it seeks, you know, other locations for investment. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of sort of hedging of bets that the industry is engaging in at the moment. And with that's the growing, what they do, right? Diverse, diversified portfolios. Right, right. And I think, you know, the tar sands for some time has been a major target of global mobilization against the oil and gas industry because of, you know, the climate, the carbon emissions associated with bitumen as opposed to other sources. Anna, thank you so much. Okay, thanks so much, Justin. That was Anna Zalik, professor at uh, the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. That was a great interview, Justin. Thank you so much for doing that. There's a couple of things that I wanted to pull out. One, of course, is the fact that the Canadian political economy is this extractive industry, and it's also banks. And the fact that the banks are underwriting this, and it's basically there's only a handful of banks in Canada anyway, Bank of Montreal, CIBC, Royal, TD, and those all are implicated in this. And these are all global players, like in the Caribbean, throughout Latin America, Canadian banks and Canadian mining is is everywhere. That's also happening in, in what you might call Indian country here, which is the template for what Canada does elsewhere in the world. So that's one. And then there's the role of American capital, which is like JP Morgan Chase, which is the biggest investor in TC right now. And also this KKR, this um, giant kind of pension fund with hundreds of billions under Colberg, Kravis, Roberts and Co, which is like 200 plus billion in assets under management. The other thing is these public-private partnerships like AIMCO, so the Alberta Investment Management Corporation. And so when you look at the politics of like Alberta and and BC and and the role of Alberta as like the the really kind of epicenter of petro politics in Canada, this is an Alberta public-private kind of. It's a crown corporation owned by the government of Alberta, and it's an investor in uh, in TC. It's kind of underwriting TC. And then the other interesting thing that emerged on the political economy front is uh, the RCMP's pension, the police. Their pension plan is invested in TC, I guess. 
So, <laughs> no conflicts of interest. No, none. <laughs> yeah. You know, the idea that they're protecting their own pension is an interesting one, too, because these projects are dubious investments. One last point I wanted to make, which is that there's a CBC story called Why Coastal Gas Link Says It Rejected a Pipeline Route Endorsed by Wet'suwet'en and Hereditary Chiefs. And it's just reporting what the company says, more or less. But mm-hmm. the, the point is, uh, someone else did a map where they said, you know, Coastal Gas insists on this pipeline going through the most sensitive and the most important territories in Wet'suwet'en. And I think if you look at the history of all of these infrastructure projects, whether it's Tyendinaga or Six Nations or here, uh, this case of Wet'suwet'en or places in Alberta, uh, like the Tar Sands, it's always like that. They're always going for the most sensitive, the most important territories. Um, well, because they don't want to put them too close to the settler communities, right? Like that was essentially the the cost assessment that uh, uh, Coastal mm-hmm. Gas Link made was mm-hmm. like, if it's too close to the communities of yep. Houston uh, up there, like Houston, mm-hmm. BC, uh, yeah. that the, the cost of a spill will be just too much, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And that, so there's various things, but then when they build it in the indigenous community, then the settlers want to go closer anyway because they want that land too so it's it's ultimately like part of the colonial project to make to impose these on territories that indigenous people oppose like that's part of previously is part of the whole thing with the blockades on the rail and the highways too because the all the stories that go back of the mohawk territories they all link back to the way that they put in the the seaway canal and the St. Lawrence, the way they put in the bridge, like the Mercier bridge that's blocked is, is built on their territory. The highways are built on their territories. They run the rail tracks through their territories with the same explanations. Like we don't want these too close to the settler communities. Mm-hmm. So we run them, you know, like we're talking in 2020 about oil and gas, but if we were talking in the 1950s, we would be talking about, you know, the bridges and the highways creating the larger, uh, highway networks and if you know you're talking in the 70s you're talking about logging roads like the Wet'suwet'en um, are on a forest service road like that logging road is goes up to that territory because it was carved in by the logging industry so these are these are recurring themes that we're today focusing on oil and gas but if we were at any previous period of colonial uh, intervention in these areas it's building other networks road rail power uh, and whatnot. I'm reminded of how the Dakota Access Pipeline, which we talked about in the first episode, was routed specifically through Indigenous communities for exactly the same reason, because they didn't want it to be too close to the the, the settler U.S. cities, because they knew that they were you know, going to spill, that there would be environmental devastation, that the impact um, would be you know, too much for the white people to bear. Um, uh, you know, so this is just, the, it's, it's one and the same. There are so many. Parallels. The flip side of this coin is that it becomes, uh, a very, a, even more vulnerable infrastructure to disruption because it's routed through indigenous right. territories, which are, which are, make it very easy for indigenous people to disrupt this. And that's when you have this kind of strategically extended, supply lines which is nothing which is canada is nothing but that because <laughs> that's yeah. all canada is yeah. um and so it ends up being um it ends up being more vulnerable precisely because of this environmentally racist strategy um no but it's also important to focus on that's the reason why indigenous sovereignty is the primary issue here it's it's the environmental it, it becomes like a knockoff on the the fundamental political premise of these blockades is indigenous sovereignty right because that is where you're at the linchpin of this crisis and that is the corporate segment of our show today And now for the breakdown. (laughs) (laughs) Here comes the breakdown, where we'll also be discussing uh, a different side of of corporate complicity and interests. As a journalist and editor and and a lifelong critic and skeptic of corporate news, felt that I wanted to, to start a regular discussion segment on The Brief where we tackle the corporate media or even independent media for that matter and their framing of stories that we cover and how language, vocabulary, and the inherent settler state imperialist biases interact with and and shape narratives. So we've seen 
these statements by Canadian politicians, Justin Trudeau, of course, uh, and, and we'll get into Justin Trudeau in a minute. But the way that they are addressing Indigenous communities is no different from how settler states and address Indigenous communities for hundreds of years. I was parsing out some of the the language that's used to even describe the Indigenous people who are resisting the settler state in Canada. There's people like uh, Peter McKay, who just a couple of weeks ago described activists as, quote, a small gang of professional protesters and thugs. He also described them as agitators who are holding innocent Canadians hostage. He says, like, you know, Albertans with a pickup truck can do more to dismantle these blockades. So really, like, you know, it's kind of... Is he talking a- about running people over? Like, is he... Is he in, is that like an incitement to violence? I mean, that's how I see it. I think he was more like, you know, people can drive their pickup trucks over to the blockades and like, you know, take down the structures and, you know, liberate the railroads for the settlers. But yeah, it's super like threatening. The, yeah. The thing is that like running people over at protests is like one of the big far right fantasies. And it actually did happen. Right, right? It, at it's one of happened. Those. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a woman that got run over at uh, Heather Heyer. Sh- yeah. Yeah. Charlottesville. Yeah. Yep. So, and that was like, that was uh, advertised on, like, they made memes right. about it and stuff before they did it. Oh, yeah. So, they there's still a do. popular meme in Alberta right now where there's a, a decal where the train is is blasting through a, a blockade of protesters and the stick figure protesters are flying all over the train. Yeah. yeah so, the kind of statements by Peter McKay are the kind of like, you know, in the at, at the Hague after the race riots, yeah. those yeah. are the kind of statements <laughs> yes. that are like, let's just be frank about it, right? Those Absolutely. are the kind of statements where you have like calls to vigilante violence, and and we've seen the narrative of Oka and the Mercier Bridge and Ganawage is that you know there's a, a documentary called uh, Rocks at Whiskey Trench, and it's about the evacuation of the civilian population from Ganawage at the time they had to go through a particular what's called whiskey trench because it's like the on-ramps for the distilleries in the area but the the civilians had to go in a convoy through this like basically canal highway canal and white racist settlers lined up along the side with a police escort and threw rocks at the cars wow. going by and created this really remarkable footage and the, the you know the race riots the incitement to these race riots is not, it's not without precedent. So these are pretty remarkable. And Peter McKay is running for the leadership of the conservative party. He's not just like a backbencher making a comment. Right. And then you have, you know, kind of the, 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 the other side of the coin where, you know, Justin Trudeau, he's basically saying the exact same things, but just in more of like a more palatable tone. So he says, um, you know, it's been two weeks and the barricades need to come down, you know, in this very like paternalistic tone. Um, he even said like, even just without looking at his face, he, I never noticed this before, but he kind of sounds like Ronald Reagan. I don't know, just in like the tone of his voice, but what he's saying, you know, essentially is like, he's, he's, he's trying to lay the groundwork for essentially a ground invasion. This is what world leaders say when they're planning to enact a full-scale war. John Clark, he kind of makes fun of Trudeau, the fact that he was like an actor, right? And like a bouncer and all these different (laughs) things. But he says, you know, Justin Trudeau may be well out of his political depth as he deals with such levels of strife, but he, although he auditioned for a less challenging part, oh, he will just it. have to play a rule of law character or move it. aside and make way for a new leading actor. So yeah, that's, that's what he's doing. That's he's pretty spot trying on. This on. I mean, listen to what he says. He says, like, we want to build a lasting resolution. This is a complex issue. We extended a hand in good faith. I mean, if I didn't know this was Justin Trudeau, I would think this was like Yitzhak Rabin or... Ariel yeah, Sharon yeah. or something. Generous you know, offer. Yeah, yeah generous exactly. offer doctrine. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. There's no partner for peace, right? Right, exactly. All we need, you know, we've tried, we've tried every every avenue of reconciliation. For, and, two, and just... for two weeks, one week of which I was traveling yeah, in Africa. Exactly. <laughs> I came back. Growing a beard. And uh, ran out of time. <laughs> yeah. Well, when the indigenous I... cabinet minister in Trudeau's government went to visit Tyndanega, his like introductory statements to the crowd was that they got a nine 
19-year boil water advisory lifted on a right. nearby community. I mean, it's almost like they're saying, you know, when you're saying Trudeau says like, you know, he's holding innocent Canadians hostage or whatever. And he's saying these comments, you know, adjacent to territories that literally do not have clean drinking water decade right. after decade after decade. Right. He's out of patience. That's right. Yeah, he says that, you know, I want to assure Canadians that we are engaging at all levels and working to mitigate the very real impacts of these blockades on people. But who are the people he's talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, and he wants to reassure Canadians. Canadians, right, exactly. That's kind of giving away the game right there. It's amazing. It's amazing. You know, and that people, people, people with a capital P um, are running out of patience. So, yeah, yeah, right. So, and then... It, and well, then on just, the nearby reserves, people are carrying buckets of water to right. drink. That's you know, right. That, yeah, that's talk about pain. running out of patience. Yeah, no kidding. And then in the next sentence, he kind of pivots to this very kind of smarmy pandering to Indigenous people. He says, you know, he talks about the historic marginalization. He talks about the legitimate grievances. He said something like, we need to address this as a country to show respect and partnership to indigenous voices that have not had their fundamental rights respected by the governance, blah, blah, blah. All that sounds fine and good. But then he, he, he once again ends that analogy without offering any actual plan for right, you right. know addressing so, so these. We, right. we, we have to do this, but if you actually try to do anything That's right. to try to address this. Uh, we're going to attack you with police. So. Right. And he ends it with saying the barricades must now, right, the, the barricades must now come down. The injunctions must be obeyed and the law must be upheld. So what are you actually talking about? Like, who who is your yeah. audience here? Why even tokenize the, the indigenous resistance or, or marginalization? As long as you as long as you do absolutely nothing. Right. And now that we've we now that we've done precisely <laughs> right. nothing to address any of the things that made you put these yes. protests in place in the first place, we uh, are we're demanding that you bring them down. It's time. Right. So, uh, yeah, this whole like, you know, we've extended our hand and now we have no more choice. And, you know, but 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 we're still here if you want to come to the table, come to our table and have a dialogue, whatever dialogue means. I mean, this is just continuing, you know, history here. A few days ago, there was a, a really good segment on CBC, Wendy Mesley. She was talking about, you know, there. It, this is this serves as a reminder that indigenous stories, you know, o- only make the headlines when there's a massive crisis that affect transportation or the movement of goods or, you know, the the economy. So only focusing on indigenous history resistance um, as their land keeps being taken away is is part of this you know, continuing implicit bias that, you know, if you're only showing Indigenous people as protesting or blocking the rails, then of course there's going to be inherent prejudice, discrimination, racism, and calls to, you know, enact violence on them. But then there's another, another, yet another, since today's my day to point out the flip side of the coin. Uh, the flip side is actually that Indigenous people cannot be heard unless they do these kinds of yeah. things. I mean, like... Yeah. There's absolutely no, like, like just right. die, just, just drink dirty just water and die ignored. in silence. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, so that was the breakdown for this week. <laughs> it was hard to pick from, you know, a, an avalanche of news stories around, around this. Yeah. There's always going to be so many crappy takes always. and so little time. And we'll wrap up this episode with uh, Gord Hill. Gord talks to us about um, the remarkable moment of grassroots indigenous militancy happening across the country. Exciting. The Brief. Subscribe and get extra shows, transcripts, extended interviews, and behind the scenes on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the brief. We're joined on the line by Gord Hill. Gord is an artist, carver, activist, and author of the graphic novel 500 Years of Resistance, and most recently, the Antifa comic book. Gord is a member of the Kwakwa Kewak First Nation in what is presently northwestern British Columbia. Gord, I guess we'll just get right into it. I wonder um, what are your thoughts on this pretty remarkable moment of grassroots direct action militancy happening from coast to coast right now? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's pretty inspiring to see what's going on across the country with all these uh, 
you know, train and uh, highway blockades and that that's going on. I think it's uh, it's kind of unprecedented in uh, in Canadian history to see this level of direct action being carried out across the country. I think the uh, the closest precedent we might have is like during the Oka 1990, the Oka crisis, the 77 day arms standoff between Mohawks and police and uh, military, where we saw widespread solidarity actions across the country, which included uh, train. You know, highway blockades, occupations, and as well as uh, general uh, sabotage of uh, power lines and stuff like this. And I think one of the things about this that strikes me is uh, this present-day uh, solidarity actions going on is that in uh, 2007, I think, was when the first time the slogan Shut Down Canada was used, and that was in response or in conjunction or whatever with the Assembly of First Nations had called for a day of action. And there were a, a number of grassroots indigenous groups that kind of, you know, got involved with uh, the, the AFN's day of action, including Tyrandanaga, where they did a training blockade at that time as well but uh, I mean this has been something that's been talked about by indigenous grassroots organizers for many many years now is this idea of shut down Canada Canada is vulnerable to the infrastructure disruption especially by indigenous peoples who you know a lot of these train tracks and highways run right through indigenous reserve territories or alongside them a lot of remote areas of the country you have indigenous indigenous people are the main population and there's a vulnerability of uh infrastructure in those areas as well so it's been something that's been talked about for a while now and it's kind of surprising how easily the train system was disrupted by what was initially just a handful of uh, blockades but as we know today it's still kind of an ongoing uh, situation so that's something that actually was drawn out very starkly by the Mohawks in Tyndanaga when they blockaded the tracks and they, they didn't do a lot of like media outreach spokesperson type stuff they didn't have like a front and center lead person um, but their voices were in unison about the significance of the blockade being linked back to Oka and what west coast indigenous communities did as you said during the Oka crisis so that was something that was um, you know front and center especially in what the Tyndanaga Mohawks did they were very expressly saying that they were there in solidarity with Wet'suwet'en, although there's, of course, dozens of Indigenous issues that could have been put on the table in that blockade. They kept it very straight, direct line, support and appreciation for what happened during OCA. Yeah, I think uh, during OCA, I think uh, BC had the highest number of uh, blockades and uh, occupations and actions, solidarity actions with the Mohawks uh, in OCA uh, in 1990 including uh, the Statlium had blockaded a, a railway, a, 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 I think it might have been Canadian Pacific Railway, for like one or two weeks, and they faced a, a fairly large RCMP operation that removed them from the tracks. So I think that's something that, you know, the Mohawks remember that that kind of solidarity. And and the thing about today now is, um, so you have Tyandanaga, there, there's still disruptions of the train, even though the police went in and removed uh, I mean, it wasn't even a blockade, eh, what the Tyandanaga did. They just positioned themselves alongside the railroad tracks. They weren't actually blocking the tracks, but they had heavy machinery there that they were, uh, you know, it was obviously intended they would be driven onto the tracks at some point. So they weren't actually blocking the railway uh, there. But, I mean, in response to the Tyandanaga raid a few days ago, you see the Mohawk communities in Ganawagi and Ganasatagi stepping up their actions. Since February 10th, the train has been blocked in Ganawagi, but then they started disrupting traffic on the Mercier Bridge, which again is like, that goes back to the, the legacy of Oka. And then Ganasitagi blocking uh, Highway 334, I think it was, and established checkpoints around their reserve territory. And then Six Nations, which of course in 2006 had this massive kind of uprising. You know, they're blocking a portion of Highway 6 or something like that. These ones kind of... Um, in response to the Tyndanaga raid, and I think that's one thing that you know the state's very concerned about is what's you know what's going to happen with these Mohawk communities who've shown the determination and capability of engaging in a higher level of resistance than what we're seeing now with these blockades. So I think right now um, that's what the state is probably most concerned about is what's happening in Ganawagi, Ganasitagi, Six Nations, and Tyndanaga. And a lot of the other train blockades that we've seen have come down fairly quickly once injunctions have been served. I mean, you've seen the stuff in Toronto 
where they, again, were blocking the tracks, but those were removed pretty quickly. Uh, the Gitsand up in New Hazleton were, went back and blocked the trains again, and they were removed, I think, within hours. So I think, right, you know, the linchpin of this train blockade thing is kind of sitting with the Mohawk uh, territories right now because they're like the longest, most sustained. And I think the state is very hesitant to try to go in and repress the movements in those communities. They've been pretty upfront about it. I mean, uh, Mark Miller, the Indigenous minister in uh, Trudeau's cabinet, directly said, I mean, when under pressure from people saying, you know, break up these blockades, he he invoked Oka, he invoked Ipperwash as as cautionary tales. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the differences you've seen in the police posture. I mean, if you look at even just the police action at Tyndanaga earlier this week, they went in in a really interesting way and different way than we've seen before. It was kind of a brute squad. It looked like they had called, you know, like anyone that was over 6'4", 220. They all looked the same and they were all, you know, they didn't have shields or weapons or gas or anything to really distract them. They had those Kevlar tactical gloves, like brass knuckle Kevlar, Kevlar gloves, and they were highly disciplined. They moved into that what looked like they were ready just for a fist fight. I mean, that's basically been the pattern at Tyndanaga since at least 2007 when they've, when they've you know, uh, periodically done these train blockades. This has been the response from the Ontario Provincial Police. And I would say that's probably a crowd control unit that's been deployed and they're in what would be called soft tack or soft hat. So they're not with helmets and shields, but, you know, they have body armor on underneath that uh, clothing. They have some kind of armor on riot gear, protective gear. So what, what we've seen in the past with Tyndanaga is the OPP will generally move in with a crowd control unit. I think there was like 100 officers were deployed just at this recent uh, action to uh, remove the people from the side of the train tracks, the blockade. So that's a fairly common tactic, uh, what, what they do with Tyndanaga. And I think one of the things that they learned was from Six Nations in 2006, where they went in really aggressively, the OPP, and tried to dismantle a roadblock that had been established. It seemed like it was kind of a small-scale action by a few people uh, from Six Nations. But then once the police went in and they tried to violently remove this this small camp or whatever, I mean, that set in motion a month-long standoff, very volatile, uh, you know, they had to deploy many, many much larger resources of police to deal with this, this evolving crowd control situation that went on for quite a while. So I think that's one of the lessons they learned with uh, Six Nations. And so they kind of they kind of go in in a different manner. And this is what we've seen with Tyndanaga over the years. And certainly the specter of Oka yeah, has been invoked by the federal, uh, federal Indigenous Affairs Minister and I think some other high-level government uh, officials saying that, yeah, we don't want to just go in and create another armed standoff. And, and of course, the danger of Oka was that it really, I mean, the majority of actions we've seen since Oka 1990 with this increased uh, Indigenous militancy, I mean, Oka really revived the warrior spirit, warrior culture, fighting spirit, uh, resistance of Indigenous peoples. And so that's a big, big concern for the state. And that's why they have this kind of hands-off approach right now trying to deal with these blockades, including the Unistaten. I mean, if you you see what they did up in Unistaten, I mean, they, they had, uh, you know, a large number of police. They had the emergency response team guys out there leading the kind of the assault on the barricades that had been erected. But still, it was a fairly soft intervention. I mean, all of this comes from OCA, really, because that's what the state fears is this, you know, repression is could just increase this resistance and actually lead to like a more insurgent movement. And this is basic counterinsurgency strategies as well. Like, you know, if you don't want to go in and, and repress a movement that's not really, you know, it's not really being super militant, although the train blockades are militant, but it really it's like a low-level civil disobedience thing. I mean, that's kind of the nature that it's taken on except in some communities, including Tyndanaga, where you have kind of a more militant history, a more kind of warrior culture kind of that's been established, that's been existing for, you know, generations and generations. So I certainly, I think uh, these are some of the lessons the state's learned. They're trying to apply it, but it's, it's obviously very difficult with these train blockades because they're so widespread and they're so easy to 
established. And once once one, like we saw in Toronto, once one is removed, I mean, a few days later, another group can come in and set up another train blockade. So it's a very effective tactic by grassroots, you know, the mo- social movements. I think it's very hard for the police to deal with them overall. We've seen a lot of blockades that were set up, but they've been removed fairly quickly. And that's why, I, again, I refer to the Mohawk blockades that are occurring. I think these, you know, this is going to be the real problem for the state is how to deal with these ones, where you have a stronger community organizing these blockades. Yeah. So it seems like a lot of the solidarity that happened on the West Coast during Oka was, was grassroots. It seems that this time around that the linking of the struggles um, seems to be almost more at a nation-to-nation, um, I mean, it's the grassroots as well, but it, the addition this time around seems to be this nation-to-nation alliance that's happening. Like the Wet'suwet'en were just here, uh, the hereditary chiefs were just here meeting with the Mohawk and doing, you know, what looked, you know, on the from the outside like, like diplomacy, right? Like linking more than just grassroots, but actually nation-to-nation linking of the struggles. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, yeah, because they're, they're ready, they're, the what sort of hereditary chiefs that travel out there are like, you know, they're like the representatives of their clans. So they have, they're at another level of organization. And, of course, the Mohawks, I mean, this is why the, the, the response from the Mohawks, I think, is so strong is because they have this fairly strong organization, and it's through the great law, uh, through their clan system. So that's what you have is like, you know, this kind of uh, sovereign indigenous nations are, you know, going and, and they're building alliances through their hereditary systems. And I think that's kind of what you probably were witnessing there. It was uh, like active diplomacy and uh, uh, nation-to-nation alliance building and stuff like that. Which is like a formidable development, right? I mean, do you see that as a as a, as a significant uh, development? Well, it, it was significant. I think it's you know, it's very really significant for the Wet'suwet'en who are opposing this pipeline project. But I mean, uh, I mean, the thing about up north in the northern BC region there with the Wet'suwet'en and the Gitsan and uh, other nations along there, I mean, they do have a lot of their hereditary system still kind of in place. They're still organizing clans and house groups and stuff like this. But one thing that's happened is there are a fairly large number, from what I understand, hereditary chiefs who are also involved in the band council system. Right. Um, so it's not all like uh, perfect in terms of, the, you know, all we'll just we'll just refer to hereditary chiefs because some of them are now involved in the Indian Act Band Council system. I mean, in some communities, the hereditary system has been very much uh, depleted by the residential school system and the and, and the imposition of the band councils. So in, in some communities, I mean, there are people who are hereditary chiefs who have no real influence in their communities anymore. I mean, there's a lot of uh, rebuilding that would have to be done before, you know, oh, the hereditary hereditary chiefs say this and you know that's a very powerful statement or whatever like, or they represent all of this aspect of this community um, and I think another thing with the Unistan I think there was a there's a fairly big division within their communities because I think a lot there are a significant number of people who who support the pipeline this natural gas pipeline and it's different than in um, you know the mid 2000s like 2006 2007 where we had the uh, proposed Enbridge Northern Gateway pipeline which was going to bring tar sands oil to the west coast and then that was going to go on uh, tanker ships and get transported to wherever so at that time you had a huge mobilization by native people up along the highway 16 you know corridor which is where the wet Wet'suwet'en are located at that time, you had a big mobilization. You had like hundreds and hundreds of people would rally. You know, this is all indigenous people rallying against the the uh, proposed Northern Gateway pipeline, and a lot of the band councils and tribal councils in the region, you know, publicly opposed the Northern Gateway project. So I think that's a difference on the ground, because I I think one of the problems the Unistan have had is actually. They have a logistical challenge with that Forest Service Road, which is the main, it's the only road access to Uinstaden territory where they have the healing center in that. So you have a logistical challenge of moving people down that road when it's now controlled by the RCMP, which, you know, they've shown they've just shut the road down, you know, when they're doing operations and whatnot. And they're still in there escorting coastal gasoline, heavy machinery and that. But I think Uinstaden faced a challenge logistically with that road. The police operations have been conducted in the winter, so it's very difficult to move through this heavy snow cover that's on the ground, and you know, unless you're on that service road. And I think they've had a challenge mobilizing the people from their own communities. Now, the hereditary chiefs have come out 
in opposition to the coastal gas link. The traditional people who support the hereditary system and, and you know, are active in the clan groups are, have obviously been mobilized. But I think that was one of the problems Unistat faced was that, I mean, from what I saw over the years was that it was difficult for them to get a lot of their community out to the healing center where, where they have their structures built in the right-of-way of the proposed pipelines. It is a powerful thing. You have hereditary chiefs going out and, you know, making these stands and going out to meet with the Mohawks and that. But it also has to be kind of balanced because, like, not everybody in the community follows the hereditary hereditary clan system and stuff like that. And I, this is, like, true in every Indigenous community. If there is a strong hereditary system that's still been maintained, I mean, you still have a lot of divisions in the community. And then with the coastal gas link thing, it's a, a natural gas pipeline... And generally, people just don't see it as much of a threat as they did with the proposed uh, Edbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline. And to me, like one of the real problems with the coastal gas link is actually the fracking, which occurs in northeastern BC in a completely other region of the province. And that's where a lot of the real ecological destruction and health problems that people are experiencing that's where it's you know that's like to me the real danger is up in northeastern bc where the fracking is actually occurring and the unistaten have been opposed to i think this is like the third proposed pipeline and it's the it's the only one that's actually under you know begun construction so i mean these are just some other factors i i, I think are kind of important to keep in mind yeah, I mean, for our audience that's not in Canada, the timing of these actions is significant in just that it's in the winter. I mean, you look at the Tyndanega ones, they're out there, you know, in minus 10 degrees in Wet'suwet'en, like you said, they're uh, hip deep in snow in the mountains, in really serious terrain up there. And so how these things will unfold, even just as the, you know, the terrain makes a big difference, but, um, you know, the seasons make a big difference in Canada. And you have something that's happening now that seems a little bit different than the Oka era is this sort of linking of the struggles with, let's call it settler solidarity, settler allies that are happening. So most of these actions, the blockades especially, are Indigenous-led, but there's a significant component of settler allies happening. Yeah, I think uh, especially in the urban areas like Vancouver, um, Toronto and that, there's a lot of non-Indigenous people involved, but there's a lot of Indigenous uh, people. Yeah, like you said, they're kind of like spearheading these rallies and actions and stuff like that. People have been doing a lot of work for probably the last couple decades at least in Canada, building solidarity, non-Indigenous and Indigenous people building solidarity, learning from each other's movements. A lot of networking has been going on for many, many years now. A lot of education about colonialism, anti-colonial struggles. And I think that's been a big part of the, the Canadian left uh, autonomous anarchist movements has been this idea of Indigenous struggles acting in solidarity with these. Um, I mean, and it was kind of during OCA too. I mean, you had a fairly broad level of public support for the Mohawks, even though a police officer was shot and killed during the initial raid. I mean, that the OCA had, you know, there was a fairly significant support for the, these armed Mohawk warriors. And that was one of the analyses that the state did afterwards was that sending in the military, you know, they sent in a mechanized infantry brigade of almost 5,000 soldiers with armored vehicles and tanks and stuff. But deploying the military gave the Mohawk warriors a moral victory in the eyes of the public because they're seen as this being like the underdog, this lightly armed force now standing up against this huge military force. But at the time, uh, you had a lot of, uh, you know, very large rallies with a lot of non-Indigenous people. And I think Montreal had some of the biggest rallies in support of the Mohawks, with like 10,000 people marching through the streets supporting them. And this is all occurring right outside of Montreal, you know, Ganawagi and Ganasatagi. And then uh, another aspect of that, of course, is like during Oka, you had this kind of racist backlash. Also, ironically, around the Montreal area in some of the suburbs like Chateauguay, you had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of racist white mobs uh, rallying. There was the incident where a convoy of uh, vehicles were leaving from Ganawagi. It was like an evacuation of kind of like civilians that didn't want to get caught up in any kind of conflict. And uh, there was mobs of, of racist white people who were throwing large stones, uh, rocks at this convoy vehicles. And there was uh, an elder that ended up having a heart attack and died at the time. Um, and today we're kind of seeing something similar with this like backlash from like like far right racist groups. They're trying to carry out vigilante actions at a few of the blockades, like 
they arrive and they try to they try to remove all the barricade material from the roadway or from the train. We've seen that in Courtney on North Vancouver Island and in Edmonton, and uh, a large contingent of counter-protesters showed up in Saskatoon where they're blocking a railway line in the middle of the city there. And um, anytime there's a significant blockade action or anything like that carried out by indigenous people, you see this like this kind of resurgence of uh, racist, anti-native racism, um, you know, sprouting up. And the thing with these blockades is like you're kind of seeing a lot of online. You're seeing a lot of racism being vented and expressed and stuff like that. But still, uh, I mean, there was a poll last week that found like. Basically, like 39% of people support the, the train blockades. The headline, of course, was 60% of people oppose the train blockades. But within that, there was something like 70 or 70, 75% of the people polled, you know, expressed support for the Wet'suwet'en and, and the need for more significant work to be done in addressing these issues that affect Indigenous people. So. There's still a, a broad level of support for indigenous struggles in general, and even with these fairly militant, very disruptive train blockades, you still have a fairly high level of public support for the actions. So the, all of this kind of is fairly significant, I think. You know, we've had uh, like Peter McKay, who's running for the leadership of the Conservative Party and foreign former defense minister, foreign minister, you know, saying that uh, a couple of Albertans with a pickup truck can do more, you know, to free the economy than than Trudeau. And it's it's but it's done with, as you said, that Ipsos Reid poll, 40 percent believed that the blockades were justified and legitimate. And it's really undercut this kind of faux, uh, lib- like soft left liberal Trudeau kind of reconciliation talk. And it's really, I mean, put a nail in the coffin of reconciliation, I think. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. I, think. I mean, the, the slogan reconciliation is dead. I mean, the, you know, the government ministers are even now trying to come up with a new slogan and some new approach that they're going to do because recon- the whole reconciliation thing is, it's been torpedoed. It's like, it's been smeared now by the resistance. So it's not something that they're going to be able to keep going on with. The whole facade of it has been, uh, you know, torn away. And that whole reconciliation thing, of course, comes from, like, you know, over a decade of, like, mobilizations around missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, uh, the residential schools, land claims, uh, the ongoing pipeline conflicts. There, You know, we've been having uh, pipeline protests since the early 2000s here in Canada, when Canada started to make a move to become, like, a petro-state. So all these things informed what became the reconciliation process and now that's all been kind of torn away so yeah these are these are really significant changes that are happening in Canada right now of course we can't see what the end result will be I mean like right now like there's a lot of native youth have been, who've been radicalized participating or even just standing watching these blockades happening I mean in the future you're probably going to see this as a more uh, as another a common tactic that's going to be uh, used Although in Alberta, you might you've seen uh, the Premier uh, Jason Kenney, you know the, the, the UCP, the, the Conservative Party that rules Alberta right now, has introduced Bill One, which is a Critical Infrastructure Defense Act. It's a new bill they're trying to do. It's a provincial act where they're trying to increase the uh, the financial penalties, like so that every day that you continue at a blockade, this fine is going to increase, and by the second day the fines could increase to something like $25,000 and also um, imposing like a six-month imprisonment into, you know, if if you're charged and convicted for blockading trains or disrupting other infrastructure in the province. And that's something that the federal government might start looking at as well, although they already have laws, you know, governing disruption of infrastructure and stuff like that. But it's kind of similar to what happened after the G20 in Toronto with the anti-masking law and the 2011 Canuck riot in Vancouver with the anti-masking law that probably some conservative uh, minister introduced and it, it, it actually passed and it increased the penalties if you wear a mask uh, an action that's declared an unlawful assembly or a riot. And so we might see uh, some legislation coming down that, you know, more, more specifically targets infrastructure disruption and increases the penalties for doing that. But yeah, definitely there's a lot of, there's a lot of movement going on right now and 
Yeah, you know, we, it hasn't uh, fully uh, finished yet, so it's, but it's definitely having an impact on Canada. It's having an impact on the indigenous social movements and other movements as well, and yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> it's remarkable times. I want to thank you for joining us. This has been uh, Gord Hill with us. Gord is the author of, uh, among other works, 500 Years of Resistance, a comic book. Thanks a lot for joining us, Gord. All right, thanks a lot for having me. I really enjoyed that interview with Gord. There's a lot of good things to say. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, Gord's incredible. 500 Years of Resistance, a comic book, the Antifa comic book, the Anti-Capitalist Resistance. That's from Arsenal Pulp Press and Fernwood, uh, which we can't get enough of. Okay, guys, good show. We'll uh, we'll be back uh, in the coming weeks with, uh, I think we've got India on tap. Ooh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and also... If everybody out there wants to head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the brief for the price of a cup of coffee a month, you can support this show and keep us going. Thanks, guys. See you guys. See you guys. That was The Brief with John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. You can hear us once a month on your favorite podcast provider or bi-weekly by subscribing at patreon.com slash The Brief. The Brief is co-produced by Pierre Loisel, John Elmer, Justin Podor, and me, Nora Barrows-Friedman. Music by Greg Wilson. Follow us on Twitter at The Brief Pod.